Okay, good morning, everyone. If you want to draw conversations too close, if I've not met you before, my name's Pete, uh, and I'm part of the staff team uh, here today. We are landing our series on the letter to the Philippians uh, this morning. Just so I can get a gauge of the room, who is this? If um, Hands up if this is the first talk in the series that you've, that you've been at. Just so I can get a, no judgment, no judgment, no judgment here. Uh, and anyone made it through the whole lot? Come on, come on. Okay, just a couple of people. It's just helpful for me to understand uh, uh, where people will be tracking. Um, and uh, so let, let me, for the sake of most people in the room, let me just kind of do a real quick run through uh, of the chapters so far. If that would help us just kind of orientate ourselves. So we've got Philippians 1. I'm not going to go into much detail. What I want to leave you with is the question that ultimately was left with us by that particular talk. Um, and and in, that le- in that part of the um, letter, Paul is saying um, in all of these horrendous circumstances that he's, he's, he's facing, that to live is Christ and to die is gain. He has this extraordinary ability, essentially, to see his circumstances through the lens of Jesus, rather than seeing Jesus and his faith and his levels of contentment and joy and hope through the lens of his circumstances. Because he's in some pretty bad circumstances when he's writing this letter, waiting to die in prison. Um, And so the, the question we were sort of left with as we went through that chapter is, do you see your circumstances through the lens of Jesus, or do you see your, do you see Jesus through the lens of your circumstances? It's one of those things, we're actually going to come back to it again later on, it's one of those things, if we could get a hold of that, it will serve us so well in our life ahead, right? If we can get a hold of that, it's so widely applicable, it will affect all of us, but if we can truly see our circumstances through the lens of Jesus, therefore Jesus determining our levels of hope, of contentment, of satisfaction, of joy, then that would be completely life-changing as we go ahead. Philippians 2 we then moved into and I was speaking about um, this hymn that Paul writes in there essentially um, he says uh, conduct, whatever happens in your life conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of Jesus Christ and, and so in chapter 2 he then goes to talk about well what is Jesus Christ like what is he like and, um, and, and we looked at this hymn where essentially in the context that they're in every hero is one that's ascending to great heights in society to high levels of honour to being a mil- military hero conquering everyone rising to the level of power uh, um, and wealth and, and authority in society that they became almost worthy of worship as a, as a, as a demigod. Um, and in the middle of that culture where that's what's being celebrated, what Paul says is, well, Jesus, the one true God, doesn't look like an ascending life, one that just accumulates for himself and accumulates power to the point of being worthy of worship. No, 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 it's quite the opposite. It's a descending life. It's an emptying. It's a life of sacrifice and of pouring out, not grasping at being God, but pouring himself out for the sake of us. And so it's the opposite journey. And I suppose the question that I would want to leave with you from Philippians, the first half of Philippians 2 is, does your life look more like ascending? Climbing, accumulating for yourself and self-serving? Or does your look more, life look more like Jesus's, one of descending, of giving away, and of other-serving? 
That's the enduring question we're left with after the first half of chapter two. Then Anna uh, kicked us off in the, in the second half of chapter two into three. Um, and essentially, there's this bit in there where Paul, um, he, remember we're talking about honor culture here in Philippi. Um, and so there would have been statues all over the city with people that they were celebrating. And beneath it would have been a plaque of why am I celebrating that person? What are all their credentials and why they're worthy of honor? And in, in, in this part of the passage, uh, Paul almost goes through his plaque his credentials, uh, all the reasons why he should be succeeding in life. And yet, here he is in the prison in Rome, potentially dying for the sake of the gospel. In other words, his life makes no sense without Jesus. By his own standards, by his own credentials, by everything that he had going for him, and he had a lot going for him, he should have been receiving honor in society and have climbed to the top. And yet, here he is, pouring himself out, giving his life away, potentially, in the service of the church. His life doesn't make any sense without Jesus. And the question Anna provocatively gave us was, does your life make sense without Jesus? Do we rely essentially on our own credentials? Does it make sense? Are we in the place we'd expect us to be, whether or not we worship Jesus? So uh, we're left with that question. Then Johnny, last week, um, there's this amazing bit in, uh, in chapter 3 where it says, One thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and strain towards what lies ahead. As a citizen of heaven and not as a citizen of Rome, essentially he was talking about having a simplicity of focus. That Paul was just so compelled by Jesus. His, he, he's so centered on Jesus. And Jesus' love for him, that he has this singular focus to his life. One thing I do. A one thing kind of way of living. And in an age of distraction, Johnny's question was really, do we have that kind of simplicity of focus in our life? Or are we so distracted? The many, 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 many things I do, I end up floundering around and don't really have any straining on towards any sort of prize. Um, and so there's been lots of content so far in the letter, and here we are um, arriving at chapter 4. Abby's going to read it uh, for us. Uh, So we're going to do the whole of chapter 4 today. Great. Um, Philippians chapter 4, verse 2. I plead with Euoda, and I plead with Sintashi, to be of the same mind in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, my true companion, help these women, since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers, whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice, and the Lord God of peace will be with you. I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I am not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in 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 every situation, 
whether well-fed, hungry, whether living in plenty or want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Yet it was good of you to share in my troubles. Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out from Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, except you only. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid more than once when I needed. Not that I desire your gifts, what I desire is that more to be credited to your account. I have received full payment and I have more than enough. I am amply supplied now that I have received from Euphroditus the gifts you sent. They are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. And my God will meet all of your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet all God's people in Christ Jesus. The brothers and sisters who are with me send greetings. All God's people here send you greetings, especially those who belong to Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you, with your spirit. Amen. Amen. Should we give Abby a round of applause? It's a long, it's a long old passage. It's a long old passage. And with it, we come to the end of, of this letter, which I've just absolutely loved being in. And if you haven't been here for some of the talks, I'd, I'd recommend you listen back. I'd recommend you read the letter because as a church, we wanted to go on a journey here of soaking ourselves in scripture um, and him speaking to us um, from them. Um, and so I want to just tackle this last chapter as we've been doing all the way through, really, just going through it bit by bit and trying to get a grasp of what it is that um, Paul was saying and what it is that we can learn from it and um, how we can be powerfully uh, transformed by it uh, here and now. So I'm going to kick off just with this first bit. I'm, I'm literally going to spend 30 seconds here. Um, but essentially, we've commented throughout the series, right, that often Paul's letters are addressing loads and loads of problems. Um, and that within this letter, there hasn't been much of that. And this is really one of the only instances within it um, where uh, it doesn't spend a lot of time on it, but Euodia and Syntyche, and yes, I did use Google pronounce <coughs> uh, to try and figure that one out. Uh, Syntyche, they are two women in um, in the church there in Philippi, and and um, Paul knows them well. They've they've been co-workers. They've been serving together, um, and essentially Paul cares so much about unity that he's detected this this um, debate between the two of them and some division between the two of them. And so whilst he doesn't dwell on it and go into loads of detail, he does think it's worthy. You know, our witness to the world, their witness to Philippi, will be powerful if they're unified. Uh, and uh, if they're a divided house, then it won't be so powerful. And so essentially, he's, trying to, he's pleading for unity uh, between them, to not let this little argument expand and then divide the community around them. I think we can all take lessons from that, of nipping things in the bud early and staying unified as, as, a, as a church so that we can witness as one body uh, to the world around us. So he, um, he, he, he Anna actually mentioned this he, about sort of titles and title giving when she did her talk. And, um, and actually, uh, that's what he's doing here. He's, it, what we should really see is how much he's honoring these two women and how abs- absolutely um, uh, key they have been in the expansion of the church there. Even more reason to say, hey, hold it together, guys. Keep things together as a, as a, um, as a unit. So that's, that's essentially what we're doing there. I'm just going to skip, skip straight through um, to this bit here. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. Um, I, I might get a bit emotional during this bit. I hope that's okay. Um, just it's, with everything going on in life of the church, it's just quite, um, for, you know, um, this is just an extraordinary passage. 
uh, to have uh, this Sunday. And I, I don't believe that's by accident. Um, so, uh, but yeah, forgive me if I could do get a little bit emotional. But rejoice in the Lord always. I say it again because it needs saying again, rejoice. And with this, we're right back at the heart of one of the key themes of this whole uh, letter which is well, two themes. One, rejoice. I think it says joy or rejoice, the, the verb to, to be joyful. Uh, something like, I think it's 19 times uh, in a four-chapter letter. It's a key theme. Uh, and it's rejoice in the Lord. It's not rejoice in your circumstances. It's rejoice in the Lord somehow. And this is, if you listen back to chapter one, then you'll get more about that. But rejoice in the Lord always. Always. In other words, in all situations, in all circumstances, and we'll come to look at that a little bit more now. But we are right back. Paul is bringing us right back to one of the central themes of this. In Jesus, in Jesus, we can have joy, contentment, hope, faith, always, in all situations that we face. And as he says this, in other words, as he talks about the people of God worshipping through difficult circumstances, challenging circumstances, and remember their circumstances is that they're being persecuted, that they, when each time they gather, they might have lost one of their members, right? And yet they're holding on to hope and the good news of Jesus Christ in the middle of it. So when the people of God are like that, then there's this really interesting thing. He says, your gentleness will be evident to all. Let your gentleness be evident to all. Somehow when you do that, your gentleness is evident to all, to the world, to the city around you. And uh, gentleness, when I first read it, I was like, why is gentleness kind of snuck in there? What, why gentleness? And um, a, a while back, actually, I think it was maybe the first one we did for the Pattern podcast, this podcast we've got look at spiritual practices. Um, we went to interview um, this amazing theologian called Dr. Jane Williams down at Simonitis College and asked her about gentleness. And she just came straight off the bat talking about gentleness and always misunderstood and, mis- and underestimated fruits of the Spirit. In other words, something that we bear fruit in our life because of the Holy Spirit being in us. Um, and talks about gentleness as a kind of strength. So this is what she says. Gentleness is a kind of strength that comes from a knowledge that you are held by Christ. That you don't need any other validation. It comes out of a deep rootedness in Jesus and how much he loves you. Let your gentleness, this gentle strength that somehow emerges when you know that you are held by Jesus Christ. In, in all things, in every circumstance, let your gentleness, this quiet, calm strength that comes from deep within you. How? Because you know that you are in all circumstances held by Jesus Christ. It somehow produces in us a gentleness in this world. And then she goes on to say, uh, right, that you don't, it, it comes to knowing that you are held by Christ and that you don't need any other validation. In other words, it is not your circumstance that validate you, that don't validate or, uh, your contentment or your joy or faith or your hope. It's not the circumstances that validate you. Uh, it's Jesus Christ and how much he loves you that validates you. And so, and when you feel like that, there's just a calmness about you, right? That this, this situation is not going to dictate and validate me. But Jesus is in all situations at all times. And then the key bit is, uh, goes and says this. Rejoice in all these situations. Let this calm strength be shown. And this fruit, this tasty fruit for the world to see around you. The Lord is near. The Lord is near. The nearness of God. The presence of God. His closeness to us. 
enables faith, hope, and rejoicing in the midst of any circumstance. How do we rejoice? I say it again, rejoice in all circumstances. Because the Lord is near. There is something stunning, and I mean this, absolutely stunning, about the people of God in difficult circumstances. Because our circumstances do not validate our values we've just been talking about. Jesus' love for us does. And this is key. We do not draw our strength from our circumstances. We, We draw it from the presence of God with us wherever we go. He promises to be with us wherever we are in whatever situation. And we are, we, we, do not, we are not calm and gentle and at peace in this world because our circumstances are. We are because Jesus is with us in every single circumstance that we face. And it reminds me of this amazing passage um, from Daniel 3. You may uh, be familiar with it. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, and it's worth us pausing there, but even if he does not, In other words, if the circumstances don't go how it is that we want them to go, even if he does not, we want you to know, King Nebuchadnezzar, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold that you have set up. In other words, we will not give up. We will not lose faith in our God and his goodness, even if the circumstances don't go the way we want. The Nebuchadnezzar was furious with them and his attitude towards them changed. He ordered the furnace to be heated seven times hotter than usual and commanded some of the strongest soldiers in his army to tie them up and throw them into the blazing furnace. Then through to verse 24, and King Nebuchadnezzar leaped to his feet in amazement and asked his advisors, weren't there three men that we tied up and threw into the fire? They replied, certainly, your majesty, there were three men. He said, look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed. And the fourth looks like a son of the gods. I see four men. Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, and Jesus. Weren't there three that we threw in there? Seven times hotter, more than any human could take. Yeah, but I somehow see four people in there. I just want to say, you know, in terms of this week, like I've seen people in more pain than I would ever want to see anyone in. You know, seven times hotter than it feels like it's humanly possible to take. And yet in that hospital, I see four people. Jesus with, how can we rejoice in that room, in that situation? The Lord is near. He is with us. And for you in your situations, that's what I'd want to say to you. There is another in the fire there with you right now. There is another in the fire there with you. That is how we don't let our circumstances dictate our levels of joy or contentment or satisfaction or hope or faith. Because we know that right alongside us, even if he does not, he will be there right alongside us. The Lord is near. 
Okay, so that's um, this extraordinary return to this central theme of the nearness of God and our circumstances not dictating our, our faith levels. And uh, then we move on to this passage, one of the best known, most loved, most quoted of, of the New Testament. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So, I just want to, as we approach this, and as I try and unpack it, I just want to give you a little bit of scope about what it is that I'm trying to do here today with this particular bit of the passage, and what it is that I'm not. Because I've just read out about anxiety, um, and and that is just one of those, in in, in the culture that we live in right now, and in the city that we live in, and in this church, it's just one of those buttons, right, that it's a word that just triggers so much. Uh, and, and even just the mention of it right now can almost stir up uh, emotions uh, within us, particularly when he says, do not be anxious, right? You're like, Paul, it's not just I'm, choo- I'm just like choosing to be anxious. I can't just stop being anxious. What do you mean you don't understand? And in some ways, I will come back to that. I will come back to that. But if you're feeling like that right now, then that's a totally understandable response to this. And I hope I can clarify um, what he is actually saying. But I also just want to... Um, uh, just in terms of the scope of what I'm trying to do, like I'm a 33-year-old priest uh, who's just trying to unpack the scriptures as faithfully as I possibly can and present Jesus in front of our eyes again this morning, right? That's what I'm trying to do. I'm not medically trained. I'm not a psychologist. Um, and so I don't want to stray too far into things that I really don't know too much about. And yet... This is such a live issue. I would say in terms of pastorally and anecdotally within ministry within this church, like this is potentially the number one thing that comes up, right? We are, lots of commentators are saying, facing an epidemic of this across this particular generation, uh, but in, in a city like London as well. And so I just didn't want to be unwise um, um, speaking about it. So I spent, I spent 90 minutes on the phone with a, with a psychologist um, just trying to get to grips with some of it. So I'm not trying to stray into becoming a psychologist here, uh, but I've tried to wise up so I speak as sensibly as I possibly uh, can about it. And what I'd love to invite you to do right now, if, if this is a really live issue for you, and for, I will, what I will point out in a minute is this is for everyone, but if this is a really live issue for you right now and you're really struggling with anxiety, um, I would just invite you, just, just take one second now and just say, I'm, I'm open to hearing from you today, Jesus. I open myself up to you. With everything that's going on, I just open myself up to what your spirit might be saying uh, through this passage. So, I think it's helpful just to put a bit of a landscape on what it is that we're, we're talking about here with anxiety. Um, and there's some different categories of anxiety. And when... Um, when I was speaking to the psychology, you're saying you get two psychologists in the room at the same time, you'll have three opinions. And it's the same with theologians. You've got two theologians in the room at the same time, you'll have three opinions. Um, but so th- this is a generally agreed different categories. These are the t- two most helpful ones that I can talk about today. Everyday anxiety and problematic anxiety. Everyday anxiety is all of us. Absolutely every single one of us in this room, no exception. It is 
uh, no exception in, in humanity, right? This is what everyone has. And it's a good thing. It's a part of our survival instincts. It's actually there to protect us, to alert us to something that's going on that is difficult or doesn't seem right or is unknown. And, and, and um, it's, it's actually uh, it's, it's good for us. It's healthy. And it's something that we all experience every single day, right? Um, and then there's problematic anxiety. And that's essentially where that everyday anxiety is almost graduated into becoming something that is difficult for you, problematic for you, and problematic for those around you. Um, and within problematic anxiety, there's this whole spectrum, right? Um, and on that spectrum, at some point, there might be that you se- might be seeking counseling for it. Or it might be that you might get diagnosed with some sort of anxiety disorder, perhaps along the way. You might get some um, medication to help you with it. And so there's everyday anxiety and there's problematic anxiety. And problematic anxiety is on a huge scale. And I would put it that probably most of us are somewhere on that scale here today and in our daily lives. Um, And I just want to point out one particular element of it. Because we often talk about low-grade anxiety, right? Low-grade anxiety. And what the real name for that is, is basically apprehension apprehension. Um, and the way you know what apprehension is, is imagine this, you're, you're sitting watching a movie uh, and the movie uh, is late at night and there's a person on their own in a house and the music starts to rise and become tense. Can you feel that? Right? And you start to think, what, what's going to happen next? Who's around the corner? That is apprehension. Can probably all feel it. Um, and again, that is a gift. That isn't actually anything wrong with that. That is a, a part of our survival instincts uh, to have that. But what it can do, again, it's on a scale, it can tip into constant apprehension. And so you feel like that about the day ahead. Or you feel like that about getting on the tube. Or you feel about that about going into a room full of people. Or going to work. Whatever it might be. And it starts to become problematic in your life. Making it difficult for you and making it difficult perhaps for those around you too. Um, so that's what we're talking about. And um, the reason I want to talk about that, firstly, just so that you know where I, I'm at with this, um, I, I, I um, have obviously always had everyday anxiety because that's what we all have and we've all experienced this. And I've talked about this before, so I'm going to be really brief here. But for about three years, actually probably slightly more than that, um, I tipped into problematic anxiety um, once we'd moved to London and it was to do with financial problems and various other things. Um, and I tipped into problem problematic anxiety to the extent that I, I can name it having three panic attacks. If you've ever had a panic attack, you feel like you're going to die, uh, and they're horrible. So I've probably, I think I named three of those. And um, I had problematic anxiety to the point that I had loads of skin issues, and I've um, problematic anxiety to the extent that I would develop vertigo and would fall over a lot. I couldn't get on the tube. I would need the toilet like constantly and instantly. Um, I would find it difficult to drive back into London, etc., etc., etc. Can you see how it is everyday anxiety, um, some sort of reasonable apprehension about your finances can then start to tip into becoming problematic anxiety. Um, and where I, I just want to be honest with you, I'm not in that place at the moment. So I've kind of, I'm back in operating out of an everyday anxiety sort of place. Um, and I just wanted to say that. So the, I, I, um, I understand something of the situation for lots of people. But I don't spend, uh, expect to understand all of it, if that makes sense. But that's a bit of where I'm coming from. The reason I point out these two things is to say, first of all, this passage, what is about to come, which I think is extraordinary and good news and hope for each and every one of us, is for every single one of us in this room. It's for any of us that worry at all about anything. This is for us. 
And isn't it amazing that Paul, right back there in a prison, uh, is writing something that can speak to the heart of our cultural moment in in this city at this time and speak to the heart of our lives. The Bible is far from irrelevant. Um, And so it's amazing that he's giving us something here that could be really reassuring and helpful for us. So first thing is this passage is for everyone. The second thing I just want to say is that there is grace for your journey and for the stage of the journey that you're on if you're in the problematic anxiety camp right now and you're operating out of that. I, I really want to say that, that this passage and what Jesus is saying and, and, and what is revealed through it can be really, really helpful uh, for you, even if you would say you're right down at this end of the spectrum. Right. And often what happens is further down that end of the spectrum, we go almost we can begin to attach the anxiety to who we are more. That it becomes who we are, not necessarily something that we're going through right now or or a challenge that we're facing, but it becomes who we are. And what I want to say to you, if you're in that end of the camp, is that... um, is that the, 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 I really believe that God can speak to you today. And, and what I want to say is that, that, it, that this is a journey and that the small steps really, really, really count. So you might be here today ready for a giant leap further into freedom around this area of anxiety. You might just be like, getting here today was a win. I just want to say to you, there is grace for you on each and every stage of that journey and that this passage should help you and Jesus revealed through it and the Holy Spirit given to you will, should help you just take one little step. And another little step towards freedom. Is that is that okay? Is that we're all good? This is where we're heading. So let me just unpack it. And let's go straight for this word, anxious. Let's just go straight for it because there's no point dilly-dallying. Do not be anxious about anything. Well, what's going on here? Anxious. Two things I want to point out. The first is about the context of his day, um, which is this. Paul had no idea about a medically diagnosed um, anxiety, right? That's just isn't what he's aware of. So when um, he says, do not be anxious about anything, just like, we shouldn't hear that because that's not what he's talking about. Just stop, stop being anxious. You've got this anxiety to stop being anxious. That's not what he's talking about because he has no concept of that as an idea. It's only about 150 years old, apparently, as an idea. So he's not speaking to that. And I'm going to unpack what he is speaking to in just a minute. But what he is speaking to, he has a really strong awareness of the culture that he is in. And the culture that he is in is a deeply anxious, as we would now call it, but they would not have called it, culture. Because they have this plethora of gods that they have to keep happy. And they are fickle. And so you're trying to appease and please all of this whole pantheon, this whole array of gods all of the time. God of fertility, or God of money, God of life, whatever it might be. And, and, and you're just constantly on edge trying to keep them all appeased. And so he is speaking into that kind of a culture, which probably isn't so different from the culture that we're in because humans haven't changed, right? So, th- so they are experiencing what we would now call anxiety, but he isn't aware of that. Does that make sense? Feel clear? Okay. So he's speaking into a culture uh, like that. And so he is aware of it. And obviously these guys are facing persecution and not knowing when something bad is going to happen. So there is a level of anxiety within uh, the church that he is speaking to. So that's the first thing in the context of the day. The second thing is the word that he uses. And the word that he uses, a Greek word, is merimnate. Merimnate. Um, and it's the same word that Jesus uses in the Sermon on the Mount, which is this passage here. Jesus says, therefore I tell you, do not worry. Do not merimnate about your life, 
What you will eat or drink about your body, what you will wear, is not life more than food and the body more than clothes, etc., etc. But, in verse 33, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Um, do not marinate. So you, you can interchange this, and translations do, anxiety or anxious with worry. And it's probably better to talk about it as worry given his understanding of the idea of anxiety. So what is he talking about? Do not worry. And the difference is, is that worry is a cognitive phenomena. It's something that we do up here with our mind. And anxiety is an entire body response to something. Now, they're related, right? Much of it begins and is fueled by a cognitive worry that can lead to the whole body response. But what he's not saying is just just stop your whole body from experiencing anxiety. What he's saying is do not worry, cognitive phenomena. Let me unpack that a little bit more. Essentially, it's stewing. It's just going over and over and over in your mind, different scenarios, how they might play out, that unknown thing. Um, and and, and you, you just chew it over. Can we all relate to that? Like lying in bed at night, you're just chewing over that thing that might play out the next day or the thing that did play out this day. And then you messed it up and it's like, oh, what's the effect of that? You know, that thing, that's what he's talking about here. And I'll explain a bit more about that in a minute. Um, so he's talking about stewing. And, and, and he, right, has every reason to be stewing to be dwelling on these things. He's in prison. He's got all the time in the world on his hands. He's in this horrible situation. He could be stewing. So he understands what we're all going through. Um, and uh, let me explain a little bit more what, where, where we, how we merimnate, how we worry. Uh, and essentially, it's an unknown. A question comes into your life, something you're uncertain about, uh, how something's going to go or when the money's going to come in or what, whether you're going to get that job or whatever it might be. There's a question mark over your life. Will we make the rent at the end of the month? You see what I mean? A, a question mark arrives in your life. And in response to that question mark, essentially, we learn this from Matthew 6.25, but also from this passage. We can go in one of two directions in response to a question in our life like this. One is a way of faith, essentially, towards curiosity. And an intrigue about, okay, I'm struggling to pay the rent this month. I wonder how God is going to do something with that. So it's essentially where the circumstances aren't fixed, but the character of God is. And so we can trust in and we move towards curiosity. The other way is one where the circumstance feels thick and fixed and massive in our life. And we begin to wonder about the nature of God within that. And so we start to move towards control through worry. Um, and interestingly, like anxi- uh, anxiety and excitement are exactly the same physiological response to something. Uh, so I went co-steering on a stag do, and you stand at the top of a 30-foot drop into the sea. First time I'm doing it, it's just pure anxiety, just this bubbling up of, oh my goodness, oh my goodness. Do it once by pure peer pressure. Uh, and then, uh, or being pushed off actually, is often what happens. And then you do it two, three, four times. And by then it's the same thing, but there's an excitement about it because you know how fun it is. And essentially you, the, the, you can go on journey. Same with public speaking or whatever it might be. There's this anxiety, but over time you might be like excited for the opportunity to speak in on the situation. So they're physiologically the same thing. But you've got this question mark in your life character of God is fixed. The circumstances might not be. I move towards curiosity. What is it that he might do? It's actually this way for you guys. Uh, and the question mark, I'm not drawing trust the character of God. And the circumstance feels really tricky. And so I move towards control. And worry is essentially about control, which I'll explain in a minute. And as we move towards curiosity, it's almost 
conversely to what we might think, this letting go and this trusting of God almost moves us into this wide open space, this freedom around the question mark. Whereas when we move through worry and a questioning of the character of God towards control, conversely to what we think is going to happen, it moves us into a narrow and shrinking life as we try and control everything around us. And this is the key to it, which is as we, as we seek out control with our lives and we grasp for it and we try and hold on to it and that thing that we're worried about, we're lying awake at night about, what we're essentially trying to do is grab control and we're trying to grab control. There's this addictive thing that keeps you hooked in, which is this perverse hope that you can do something about it. This perverse hope that you can save yourself. This perverse hope that relies on your own strength. And so you start thinking through, well, it, maybe if I did this, then maybe this did change. You know what I mean? You start going there. They're nearly all, if you look at it, they're nearly all about what you might be able to do to get yourself out of the situation, get everything under control. So you think you'll be feeling free, but actually you're shrinking as you do that. Um, and, uh, and this is the interesting thing about this passage. It's this perverse hope that's based on our strength. Is this merimnate, this chewing over, this going over and over and over. What does Paul say in response to that? He says, don't merimnate, don't chew over all that stuff and try and save yourself and go into your own strength and control your life. No, through thanksgiving and et cetera, et cetera, which I don't have time to go into, sorry. But present your requests to God. Worry is hold on to them. Hold on to them, hold on to them. I can do something about it. The other is to present your requests to God. And so the journey that he's talking about from worry to peace is essentially by taking it to God in prayer and trusting in his strength, in his character, not in your strength and your ability to save yourself. It's essentially a letting him save. We take it to him and what does he say will come? Oh yeah, and in that, I just want to reaffirm this celebrate the small steps. So again, you might be like, that is a big ask, Pete. That is a big ask for where I'm at in my life right now. And I'm not saying it's not a big ask, but what I'm saying is celebrate the small steps. So if for you, it's like, <clears throat> okay, <clears throat> tomorrow, I'm going to do this thing, right? Just this tomorrow, God, I'm going to give that one thing, that small part of my life over to you tomorrow. I'm going to release it into your strength and into your character and into control. That's an amazing step. That is an amazing step. So I want to encourage you, if you're in a battle, if you feel like you're in the battle of your life around this stuff, then take the small wins. They're brilliant. Um, and he said, so do not be anxious, but present your requests to God. Give them over to him and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. So let's look at this word peace. We've looked at worry, and now let's look at peace. And the word here uh, is, oh yeah, it's peace beyond understanding. And this is absolutely critical to understand. What is peace, in other words, within understanding? And that is, I'm merinating around my finances and I don't know if I'll make it to the end of the month. Peace within understanding is you are given £2,000 and now you can pay the bills this month, right? So like, I was like, yeah, like I'm feeling at peace now. That's because the circumstances are It's perfectly explainable that you're feeling peace now because the circumstances got fixed. Um, that's peace within understanding. But what Paul is talking about here uh, is, is peace beyond understanding. In other words, it makes no sense that you are at peace right now. It makes no sense. To anyone looking on at your situation, it makes no sense. That's what he's talking about here. In other words, the circumstances haven't changed. Right, We're right in the thick of the core theme of not a circumstance-driven faith, hope, contempt, or joy. 
We're in the, we're in the, where the circumstances haven't gone right. So the second thing I want to point out is, is the word that he uses here for peace. So it's peace beyond understanding, but what is peace? And peace comes from this, um, is, is a reine, and it comes from the word ero, or ero. Um, and ero means to bring back together two things that were once divided. Peace, I, uh, peace beyond understanding, peace that brings back together two things that were once uh, divided. In other words, feeling a lack of peace is a feeling of being pulled apart somewhere deep inside of you, divided over something or by something. If you think about this just really practically, um, war is where two sides are divided and peace is when they're reconciled and brought back together. And where there's reconciliation experts in the room over here. Um, that, right? Like, that's what peace is like. And we get these phrases, pull yourself together. Or that person has it all together. That's from this, they think. Like, that person has it all together. When you see someone, they've just got it all together. It's like, oh, they just, they seem to be internally, they see almost that gentleness, you know, we were talking about before. It's like, oh, they seem, like, their circumstances don't seem great, but they seem to just be all right, or something's going on in deep inside of them. And, and there's this, essentially, this is what Jesus is, is, is promising, is peace, beyond understanding, not dependent on circumstances. And in John 14, he has this beautiful thing, and he says to them, as he gives them his Holy Spirit, the nearness of God, as he puts his Spirit in them, he says, peace, uh, Irene, I leave with you. My peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. If he's, what, what's, the, what's the peace that the world might give to us? Well, it might be like a little oasis in the city in the middle of all of the chaos. You're like, oh, I found a bit of peace, right? And they got the kids to bed and there's a little peace, a little bit of peace. Um, and, and that's the sort of peace that the world might be able to give us, a slight escape from the stuff that we're facing, and we feel a little relief for a moment. It's not a deep pulling back together of anything at all. It's just a little relief and respite from the circumstances. But he gives us peace that isn't as the world gives. It's peace from beyond the grave. Peace of someone who has been through it all, been obedient to death, even death on a cross for you and I, who, who, who has experienced this separation from his father, all of the weight of the sin of the world, and yet has risen again to provide us all hope. It's peace from the other side of the grave. The ultimate pulling together. This is Colossians 1, 19 to 20. For God was pleased to have... Uh, all his fullness dwell in Jesus, and through Jesus to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace, Irene, through his blood shed on the cross. This is the ultimate bringing back together of that which is divided. And, and there's a German theologian called Helmut Thielicke who talks about this, you find it in the Patent Podcast again under peace, when you listen to Graham Tomlin, Bishop Graham Tomlin talk about this. He talks about a German theologian called Helmut Thielicke who uses the example of two paintings. <clears throat> with a foreground and a background. And essentially, he, t- he talks about how, how in the foreground of one picture, is, 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 it's light and it's calm. But the background, the sky, the everything going on behind, the weather is stormy and it's full on. That's the peace the world might give us. In other words, we found a bit of respite from everything going on around us. Uh, but but the, 
conversely, the, the peace that a Christian receives from Jesus Christ, the foreground is chaotic and stormy and, and dark. But the background, the sky, the weather, the sun has risen behind and the background is light. And that means that, yes, we might be in a situation beyond understanding. Uh, but the background, the narrative, the deep within us the context for us for our life is light and hope-filled the sun has risen and so that enables us even if he does not deliver us from that particular circumstances it enables us to live with that as the truth in our life does that make sense of the two different pictures and this is how Eugene Peterson, which is just a brilliant way to summarize this little bit of the passage don't fret again fret 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 that's what the, that is or worry Instead of worrying, pray. Let petitions and praises shape your worries into prayers, letting God know your concerns. Before you know it, a sense of God's wholeness pulling back together, everything coming together for good, that ultimate story Anna was talking about right at the start, the sky is light, will come and settle you down. It's wonderful what happens when Christ displaces worry at the center of your life. It's not a fluffy feeling. It's not the circumstances changing. It's a deep, deep gentleness, calm strength that comes from knowing that we've been pulled together in Jesus Christ, even when the world around us is storming. And just as we land, let's just look at this very last bit. I'll do this in literally three minutes. He goes on to say, so not just do not, he then goes on to say do and he basically says, um, finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, and this is just one thing I want to pick up on, Merimnate, the, the worry that we're talking about, feeds off the untrue or the not yet happened. It fuels it. If you think about that time when you're worrying, most of the time, right, the thing hasn't actually happened or it's a thing that might happen in the future. Um, and it's a threat to your personal domain, and so it gets you really, really worried. And he's basically saying, like, how about we don't just stew and go over in his prison cell all of the negatives, but why don't we go over what is true? When that question mark comes, is the character of God fixed and the fixed truth in your life or not? And so he's imploring us, inviting us to lean in on that which we know to be true. And then essentially focuses on lots of beautiful things. And that's because... Uh, uh, when we experience anxiety, our negativity bias increases, and so you start to see the world through a negative lens. It's biological. So as you feel more anxious, you see everything to reinforce it. And what he's saying is, like, how about instead of just circling around on that stuff, how about we focus on what is true and noble and lovely and excellent and praiseworthy? Think about such things. It's the hardest word I've ever come across to say. I can't do it. Um, practicing in front of the mirror and everything. It's this word, it's a Greek word for the Hebrew, the Hebrew concept of meditation. Dwell, ruminate, reflect on. He's saying all of these things, just ruminate on them, dwell on them. Just, just um, stay there in those places. And the God of peace will be with you. So I just want to ask you, what are the habits, <clears throat> habits of your mind? When you, when you get a moment alone with your mind, what are the habits of your mind? And that's not for judgment. It's actually, there's real hope here. We're all in the situation, remember, we all do the everyday worrying. We all do it. And his invitation is to transform the habits of our mind, the ways that we think and dwell, the places we dwell onto things that are of God. And here's the final thing I want to say. 
It's essentially another bookend of saying, I've learned to be content in every, in every situation, whether I've got much or very little. I've learned the secret, he says. And what is the secret? I can do all this through him who gives me strength. And when you grow up in a church, like this is essentially a bumper sticker for an ascending life. You can do it. Like, go smash life. God's with you. I can do all things through him. And it's just, I just don't think it is that at all. And um, take it out of context, that's what happens. But take it in context. Right at the end of this whole letter, I can do all this. I can do all this. What's this? Be in prison and yet have hope. Be in pain and yet have joy. Give my things away. Pour myself out. Serve the other. Rejoice in all situations. I can do all of that through him who gives me strength. Take on the world with power and might and strength and ambitious and rise to the top. It's the way of the descending life is possible because of his strength in us, his Holy Spirit in us. Rejoice in the Lord always. I say it again. Rejoice. The Lord is near.